You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Hey everyone out there, what is going on? This is episode 60 of Mike and Kristen, and we are so honored to have you here listening to our podcast. Kristen, now you talk. (laughs) Say something. I didn't want to cut you off. You do such an enthusiastic intro. I don't want to rob you of any of your great announcements. Well, we just had a great week in the past little bit. We did. Do you feel recovered from the weekend? Well, I'm still kind of working on all the the contacts I made. So yesterday I was kind of going hard at reaching out to people. And I feel like it's not even over yet, really. So we're just on the tail end of East Coast Music Week that was here in Halifax this year. Yeah. Charlottetown next year. And it's always such a fun gathering. We get to see lots of friends that we haven't maybe visited in a while. And you kicked things off with... Lots of one-on-one meetings, which is the aftermath of this event that you're speaking of. Well, I kicked it off with the basketball game, actually. That's true. You threw it off then. That was the very first event. So walk us through some of your weekend highlights. Well, winning the basketball game and playing my first competitive game in 19 years yes. was important. And playing pretty good, you know, I felt felt pretty good. Good at the end of it. Had a lot of buckets and blocks and rebounds. So. It was a high skill level out there on the court this year. Well, there's some former professional players and a girl on Team Canada on the team. So, yeah, there's some good players for sure. And everyone had fun. And yeah. they were raising money. So yeah. that's always a, an added bonus. But it was at St. Mary's Gym and it was pretty packed in there, actually. Ooh, crew, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I got a pretty good draw All for, for my you. hoop skills. All had Mike Ryan t-shirts yeah. on, of course. So, yeah, we won the basketball game, and then uh, then the meeting started. Mm-hmm. Like, all these one-on-one meetings with different uh, delegates from around the world. And our guest today is actually, yeah, we'll get into it, but uh, Matt Gorman is a music lawyer, and he was a delegate that a lot of people would have met with. I didn't meet with him because we talked to him on the podcast here. You had a whole hour or more with him yeah. here on the podcast to pick his brain. But typically the meetings are only 10 minutes, 10 right? 10 minutes, yeah. I went into the conference room, doors open just a crack, and I was able to take a peek in. And it looked exactly like I would imagine speed dating to look. Well, that's what it is. It's just like 70 people set up at ta- little individual tables. And you have 10 minutes to chat with them, ask some questions, or try to get something from them that you're you're trying to obtain. It, I guess it's different for everybody. Yeah. And how do you know your 10 minutes is up? Oh, they have a system. Like, they ring a bell and okay. someone yells out. Okay. But, yeah, I had a bunch of meetings with a lot of music supervisors who place music in shows and commercials and different different places where you'd hear songs. They're the people who who get it, get it in there. And so that's something I'm trying to, trying to make happen a little bit more. Okay. And what else about your weekend? So I played in the hockey game. 
So sports and music, yeah, yeah, hybrid weekend yeah. for you. And I, I ended up being the captain off the team for some reason. <laughs> and the only one without an ECMA jersey. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking all the pictures and I don't even know what my jersey said, like Mad Dog or something on it. Everyone else has these brand new ECMA Cup jerseys. and Because I got to the to the, uh, the game late, later than a lot of people because I was in meetings and most other people aren't doing that. So, yeah, we won that game too. I got to hoist the ECMA Cup at the end and it felt pretty good. So you got two trophies this weekend. Two trophies. And I had uh, showcases, played... Played... Uh, Two, two shows, one f- kind of more for the delegates and one open to the public, and both were, were great, like good crowd. Like the, the evening one, the public one was pretty packed in a, hu- in a huge room. Yeah, so. it was a rager in there. It was it was packed. And Matt was there, today's guest. We Matt Gorman was there. We ran into him, and uh, he was, yeah, he spent the weekend at the conference as well. I'm sure he gave amazing advice to so many musicians that would have been there and we talk in this episode about how there aren't a lot of people doing the kind of work that he is. So I'm I'm not surprised that he was one of the primary people to connect with there. Yeah, he'd be one of the most active music lawyers or entertainment lawyers in Canada. Like he has clients from all around the world, people that trust him to take care of their their business basically. I think this was an important episode to highlight some of the behind the scenes aspects of the industry. Yeah. So we get to talk with a lot of the artists themselves, which is always exciting, but Matt gives a different perspective on the services he offers or maybe some of the challenges or questions that a listener who's pursuing music or some of our previous guests might benefit from. We also get pretty heavy into the AI conversation, which was unexpected, but it was really interesting and Kind of philosophical to ponder the way that the the industry is going, but certainly from a legal perspective, how that's changed his work as well. Yeah, well, just in the last like number of months, really, um, AI, artificial intelligence for uh, people over sixty five, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, changing the music landscape. Like people have been dead for thirty years are releasing brand new songs that AI is creating for them, which is kind of crazy and opens up this whole wormhole of uh, legalities and morals and ethics. So it's it's pretty fascinating. I remember when they started with the holograms, are they called? When they could kind of project the body yeah. of like Michael Jackson or something yeah. was at a festival. So this is the next uh, iteration of that technology. Yeah, like John, I think there's a brand new song that John Lennon wrote, like the AI version of John Lennon. From Beyond the Grave. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat. But yeah, it's, it's cool because everyone has an opinion on it and like no one's wrong. Like some people like they shouldn't be able to do that at all. And like, oh, I understand that. And some people like this is the coolest thing ever. Like they'll live on forever. Let's get as many songs as possible. It was cool in our conversation with Matt. Some of these questions we raised amongst ourselves, but hadn't put a lot of thought into. And since then, you and I have had discussions with each other and other people we've encountered like, whoa, I never really thought about this. So still more uh, thinking to do. Yeah. But and this is like you said, this is the early stages of what this might eventually end up looking like. Yeah. Well, let's just jump into this conversation with Matt, a great guy from down Yarmouth way. 
And yeah, he's got a lot of, a lot of cool things to say. And, uh, it's a really interesting episode because again, like you mentioned, not that many people think of this side off the, the music scene or the entertainment world. And there are often people like Matt behind, oh, there's always someone like Matt behind, like everyone who's making a, a rise to the, to the top. That's right. And if we're going to chat with anybody about this stuff, he's definitely the guy to do it. Yeah, he's a musician himself, too. Exactly. He's a great drummer. But you'll hear all about it. Yeah. Let's de- Let's go. Okay, let's do it. Woo. I grew up in this, like, 120-year-old house in Yarmouth that was always cold. So I feel like it kind of just changed my yeah. blood or disposition or something. We did too. My house was built in 1802, right next door to the church and the community. And it's just a road, really. But we've since been able, or my dad has found a lot of the history that outlines all of the different homeowners. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that the very first homeowner of the house actually had a heart attack in the outhouse at Whoa. the time. So that's what we learned about uh, <laughs> yeah. 2623 Clarence Road. Did anyone die in outhouse year yeah what's your house story (laughs) i don't think so um you know what i have no idea what my house story is um but i I know it's about 120 years old there's gotta be some kind of cool story someone is it still is it still standing (laughs) yes it's it's still standing like yeah the house i grew up in in yarmouth is still there my my mom is still there they're actually building my mom and stepdad are building a a house just a few roads over nice um But yeah, it's just an old, big house. And it had this uh, garage and this room up over the garage, which is where we jammed. And so it was incredible because you could like be in the house. I could be playing in a heavy metal band and no one would hear Mm. the music in the house. It was pretty perfect. Um, We we chatted just before we came on air about you growing up in Yarmouth, which for a period of time was kind of the most thriving music scene in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, yeah, I was very kind of proud to to be in that scene and played in kind of a prog rock type band. Um, at 14, 15 years old, we were playing shows and um, organizing shows at the high school, the Milo Boat Club, all these kind of cool different little venues and uh, playing with a lot of really cool bands like bands yeah. like Carrie, um, you know, two members of that band went on to form Winter Sleep, yeah. um, Burnt Black. A bucket truck who was, I think, based in Newfoundland at the time, yeah. came and played a show in Yarmouth, which was a lot of fun. And yeah, I just, I, I always said, like, per capita, Yarmouth music scene was, had to have been one of the best. And oh, I would say 100%. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I wonder how that happened because there was no social media back when we were growing up. And for it to be such a hub, it wasn't like people knew about it and were kind of like, oh, I'm going to move to Yarmouth for the music scene. It just naturally happened. Yeah, it just naturally happened. I, I just think um, there were some really talented musicians, some really talented songwriters, and um, a combination of that and some really cool music that a lot of people were inspired by. You know, we were all into kind of bands like Tool and Radiohead. I mentioned Dredge earlier, um, At the Drive-In, um, all these cool kind of bands um, that we really latched onto musically. And um, a lot of us just picked up an instrument, um, whether it was drums, guitar, bass. Um, a lot of us played all those different instruments. And um, 
that's what we did after school is we jammed yeah. <laughs> and we made music and we wrote songs. It was all original. We never did covers. That was never a cool thing to do. Um, and, uh, and fortunately there were all these other musicians and bands that we had an opportunity to play with. Um, um, and even you were talking before about Contrived, who were in Stellarton, Lowell Campbell played in that band who then went on to play in Winter Sleep. And so it was, um, yeah, just a cool community of musicians that ultimately um, kind of came together to go on to form other bands. And we all know about the successes of some of those other bands. Yeah. And even Brian Borchard, who had a band called Burnt Black, legendary band from that time. And, you know, they had a record called Burnt Out. It was just one of my favorite albums of all time. And everybody in that scene just kind of listened to that album over and over and over again. Um, and of course, Brian just went on to do so many other cool projects, you know, Trephines and, you know, Holy Fuck yeah. and all kinds of other stuff. And even to this day, you know, he's still one of my favorite songwriters. Dusted's and pretty awesome. Dusted, of course. Yeah. yeah. Was there an all ages club there? Where did you guys watch? Well, there wasn't really an all ages club. So we, we played in high schools. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, the, the, the junior high school that we played in, um, with winter sleep, I think it was, I think someone can correct me on this, but I think it was winter sleep's first show. And they opened for us, our band called isolated and contrived. Um, and I remember even at that time they opened with, um, I think Orca and everyone nice. sort of thought, Hey, this is something really cool and special going on here. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier the Milo boat club. Um, it was this really bad sounding hollow kind of echoey place, but it didn't really matter. Our friends would come for whatever reason and pay money to see us play and hang out. And yeah, so we would go anywhere that we could. Um, there was also kind of a cool uh, French music, Acadian type scene as well. And there were some cool venues out in um, Sluice Point, um, Popnico area. And every now and again, we would venture down there. So yeah, we would play anywhere we could. Yeah. <laughs> there was no all ages. Everywhere was all ages. There was no, everywhere was all ages. There was no kind of club yeah. um, happening there. Did you do any of the uh, young guys playing in uh, bars? Like when I was growing up, I was 16 and we started playing the, the local legendary bar in my hometown. We had to sign the permission slips, which you would know all about now as a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we, we would sign the permission slips that, said we would not uh, mingle with the local alcoholics yeah and we would play our set and had to go promptly to the green room or the the dirty basement which was our green room and uh come back up play our next sets and it was an amazing experience i'm not sure if that was happening in yarmouth as well so you know definitely not that formal so there was a club called the red knight yeah that's um, still there isn't it still there yeah. equally as dirty and, yeah. and grimy as as you'd think no permission slips happening there. Though. Okay, it was yeah. sort of a don't ask, don't tell kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Um, I remember playing there a whole bunch underage, and uh, um, I don't remember ever signing a permission form. I mean, I probably left soon after. I probably didn't mingle and hang out for, yeah. for too long. I remember, though, we played in Halifax a bunch when we were 15 or 16, and that was a little bit more formal. Yeah. We had to go. I think we played at the Palace, actually. There was, yeah, yeah. There was a, um, for whatever reason, we got convinced to go on this compilation album that for some reason we had to like pay a whole bunch of money to actually be on. <laughs> and I think we were convinced that, Hey, if you are on this compilation album, you know, you do two tracks, you'll get a whole bunch of CDs and you can sell those. And that's how you make your money. And I think I still have a box of them at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't pay off. It, it did not pay <laughs> off. But I remember like the, uh, the album release party was at the palace in Halifax. And that was a lot of fun. It was a super fun show, but I remember being in the green room in the basement at the time and we had to like leave immediately yeah. after our our show and all that kind of stuff so kind of remember some of that but yeah 
I had a another band, and we were we were touring across, I guess, to Ontario and back, and we were staying in Ontario for a fairly extended period of time because one of our members was from there. And there's this bar we played at probably five or six times, and our bass player turned nineteen uh, at one of the shows we were playing at, and we. So I wished him a happy birthday on stage and we had not told the venue beforehand that he was 18 so this was our sixth show playing there and he just turned 19 so the bouncer came up and ID'd us all on stage <laughs> uh, in the middle of our set okay. were the rest of you of age? we were yeah we were oh. all of age we but... should tell all of our breaking the law stories I think on this yeah. episode Yeah, you can let us know the consequences for them maybe no for sure I mean yeah, maybe that's a different podcast I know of. <laughs> um, but it's funny, though. Like, I, um, we started playing music at such a young age. Um, I just remember always being underage, like, no matter yeah. what. Like, whether it was the Red Knight in Yarmouth or some clubs in Halifax. Because um, we started, like, 14 or 15 playing in bands. And I remember my first year of university, I was only then still 17 and just weaseling my way into bars and stuff. And I almost felt like at that point it was my right to be in yeah. like, the bar because I'd been doing it for so many years. But like, this um, is boring now. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, but anyway, yeah, like it didn't. It, I, I can't remember it ever really stopping us from from playing, and um, you know, most you know bars and venues that we went to seem to be accommodating and stuff. So yeah. Did you have a drum kit in your uh, outbuilding? Yes. Yeah. A, a premier artist birch kit. I like worked all summer to Ooh. to buy to convince my parents it was a good investment, and they said, "All right, whatever. <laughs> you know, your money." Um, I still have that kit to this day, nice. and I just realized they don't make premier drums anymore, so I oh, needed no? like a part for it and couldn't actually get that part. Um, but yeah, no, I played drums all the time, every day. Um, when I wasn't playing drums, I had like a practice pad like set up at my house and was practicing like singles and doubles and paradiddles and whatever. And I was just pretty, pretty religiously playing drums just uh, as far back as I can remember. So um, yeah. And was this with the aspiration of I want to be in a band? This was your life. Yeah. Path. Be a, a career musician. That would be mean. Yes. Yeah. Be yeah. a band for like a career. Yes. Your job. Yeah. I think I had to, I had some unrealistic expectations that that could happen and I could, and I could make that happen. Um, but yeah, totally. It was always a dream to, to play professionally and play in a big band. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that was the dream. Um, and I, I, even at 37, I still have this again, um, totally unrealistic expectation that one day I'll get this call from, you know, some big artist. Hey, you know, our drummer broke their legs and we're going on this big tour. Um, can you do it? Um, you know, with two young kids now, I think the dream's probably passed, but I still kind of entertain it in my mind every now and again. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a dream back in the day was to play professionally and it's, um, but yeah, I don't know how the whole law school thing happened, but that then became a dream for some weird reason. And then mm -hmm. the two kind of dreams and paths and, um, you know, passions kind of like kept going in tandem. And um, I feel like even to this day, it's still the same. If I have an opportunity to play, even if I have to work late or something, I'll, you know, I'll drop, you know, I'll pick the kids up, I'll drop them off at home, you know, we'll do supper, bedtime, whatever. Um, maybe there's a, a jam from like 8 p.m. to 10. And then maybe I'll have some work from like 11 to 1 a.m. and I need to do that to make a rehearsal or playing drums work. I'll do that. Um, so sometimes the schedule gets a little insane, but I've always been a firm believer of making time for what you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, even if it means getting like a few hours of sleep every now and again. 
Um, so I've always felt that way with with drums. I've always found a way to just like fit it in or at least try to. Did you go into law with the goal of being in the entertainment side of it? Um, interestingly, no. Yeah. Like I, um, I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> It was always like my dream for whatever reason. Um, criminal defense lawyer, a crown prosecutor or something crazy like that. And um, although my aunt is a musician, she's a really, really great piano, jazz p uh, pianist in Toronto. Yeah. Um, she was always like, oh, you should be an entertainment lawyer. But in my head, I just never thought that was a reality. I just was like, well, if you're not in New York or L.A. or something, that just can't happen. And the the only lawyers you see on TV are criminal defense lawyers. <laughs> like, yeah. In, in court, it's, it's giving inspiring looking. speeches. I know. I know for sure. And and um, I, I just I always had um, I always love I always love that idea of being able to counsel somebody through a problem And criminal law, I was just, it's, it was always a passion of mine and helping young offenders and all that kind of stuff. And that was, that was what I wanted to do. Um, so I did do a little bit of that, but then as time went on, um, I, I realized, Hey, well, maybe the entertainment thing could work. Um, and, and I'm now doing it, but it was a long, long road to get there. Like I started out doing, you know, corporate commercial law and I still do a little bit of that to this day. Um, I try to do some criminal law. I tried to fit that in, um, And then, yeah, over time, I thought to myself, hey, if I don't make the entertainment stuff work now, um, it just is never going to happen. And so I started taking clients on for um, for nothing or a super low hourly rate. And um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I first started doing entertainment law. I, I built my own law firm called Ocean Town Music, which was a separate company. And it really became my law firm, which I had aspirations to turn into a bigger sort of music company, not just a law firm. Um, but when I was operating Ocean Town Music and doing legal services through Ocean Town Music, yeah, I would either give my time away or bill at a super low hourly rate to just build that clientele and client base and build yeah. that goodwill. And you know, I did conference speaking everywhere and traveled all the time and and uh, until I got to the point where, um, yeah, I could kind of increase my rate a little bit. And and now it's um, a fully thriving kind of business. And um, yeah, so that's wow. that's kind of where I am now. Does the specialization happen because you've created that or is it something within school that you're taking particular courses to learn yeah. entertainment? No, it's a good question. Like there's no, there's no specialization in law school at all. For any, okay. <laughs> Not really, no. And they don't yeah. really even teach you how to be a lawyer at all. Perfect. <laughs> um, there's sort of basic courses you take, you know, you do your contract law and constitutional law and criminal law and whatever. Um, but the specialization really comes through hustle and time and mm, learning. Which and, you clearly and did. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a lot of uh, hustle <laughs> and it still is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you don't really get into the entertainment business for, um, you know, for the money or if you are not looking to work a lot of hours <laughs> a year, um, mm -hmm. if you're not looking to market, all that kind of stuff. Entertainment's not really for you. But, you know, I, lo I love going to shows. I love talking to musicians. Um, I love playing music myself and I just, it's, it's just, it's always been a good fit for me. And I feel like over the years, now that I'm dedicating more of my time to that, um, I'm really, really glad that I made the switch. Um, because I hear a lot of lawyers say, oh, what you're doing is cool. I wish I had done that. Um, and I know that I would be saying that exact same thing if I hadn't done it, you know, when I did, um, because I was getting older and, you know, I'm not going to be 50 and say, Hey, I'm going to start this entertainment law practice. Now I really had to do it at the time that I did. I feel like it was the right time. Um, I had the music background, so it always kind of gave me 
um, you know, a helpful lens when chatting with my clients. I kind of always knew where they were coming from. Yeah. And um, and yeah, no, I, I, I love it every every day. I, I enjoy it. You know, um, people call me to say, hey, I've been given a management contract. Like, what does this mean? Or here's a record deal. What should I be looking out for? Should I sign this? Or, um, you know, hey, I'm fighting with my co-writer who wants like more of a share of music publishing. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Or, you know, I work with a producer and they gave me like a 20 page contract. What does this mean? Um, I love I, I love kind of counseling artists and musicians, creatives through that process. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's super fun. Are there enough people in Nova Scotia to do that? Or are you like going to a wider area, people from all over? Yeah. No, another good question. Uh, no, the answer is no, not really. <laughs> um, yeah. Like um, for me, the market is kind of... Um, almost worldwide yeah a lot of my most of my clients i would say are are in kind of toronto um at west vancouver um you know new york la um i now manage a producer um i got into that he started out as a client and uh, over the last sort of um six seven months i've started to actually manage him so that's sort of been a different part oh, nice. of my business um but no yeah unfortunately um uh yeah i couldn't just focus probably on the nova scotia <laughs> yeah. market as much as I love the music scene here. And of course, there's a lot of talented people that have deals every now and again, but um, I knew from the beginning that I needed to kind of expand my reach a bit. So it, it's really kind of all over. And I'll, you know, I'll get calls and emails from from people kind of all over the world at this point, yeah. which is really, which is really neat. How are they finding you? I know, um, you, I know you do a lot of conferences and speaking engagements. Is, yeah. that, is that a big thing? I think it, some of it does come from that, but yeah. honestly, um, Honestly, I think most of it just comes from referrals. Yeah. I think referral sources are key um, because a lot of the referral sources and a lot of the ways I get business, um, it doesn't come from artists direct, directly. Oftentimes it comes from managers and management teams um, or even labels, you know, the A&R folks at labels or something that yeah. may have dealt with me on the other side. And they said, oh, hey, that guy wasn't a disaster. You know, he seems cool. So, <laughs> so maybe if we're dealing with an artist, we want to sign who needs independent legal counsel, you know, maybe we'll throw it to Gorman. Um, so I've been getting kind of a lot, a lot of kind of files through, um, you know, that way, but, but every now and again, you know, I'll go to a show and I'll chat with a artist and they'll need legal help and yeah. it will happen that way as well. The Instagram stuff I love doing just because I like doing it and I'll get a, a lot of DMS from people. <laughs> Sometimes it does lead to files though. Like yeah. um, I have a, a music licensing company is doing really well right now. They're a Canadian company, but they're based in LA now. And I, I'm pretty sure I got that through a cold DM. I, I yeah. messaged the producer slash president of the company and I said, hey, you guys are doing lots of cool shit. Um, I'm an entertainment lawyer, can we chat? And he's like, he wrote me back in like two seconds and was like, yep, yeah, we just fought, fired our last lawyer. <laughs> good, good timing, can you chat like, you know, tomorrow or whenever it was, yeah. um, or tonight even, because they were, uh, they're based in LA, which is four hours back. And so, if I, if I get that call or email and if it's 10 p.m. my time, well, it's the right time for them. So I've got to mm -hmm. jump on a call. Um, so, yeah, it's, it just comes from all over. It's, it's really cool. It's funny because, Mike, you're asking if there's enough clients here. And my question would be, how many people are doing what you're doing? Like, are there enough mm. entertainment specific lawyers to fuel that market from the other side? Um, not around here, mm -hmm. not around here. Um, it's a relatively small market. Um, you know, I deal with a lot of the same entertainment lawyers, but most of them are based in 
um, Toronto, New York, LA. So a lot of familiar faces and names, but not too many um, on the East Coast. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm pretty sure I'm the only one. Yeah. Um, Chip Sutherland, legendary Chip Sutherland, um, who's a mentor of mine, yeah. uh, an amazing guy. Um, he was doing it for many years himself, and um, uh, you know now kind of more so leans into the management role. You know he, I, you know he continues to uh, manage or co-manage Leslie Feist and you know I think Mustafa and Always and lots of really really cool acts. So he's been yeah an incredible mentor and and was doing it for years and years and grew up I think with the Rankins and Sloan and that whole that whole scene. Um, so he's one of the few guys that comes mm -hmm. to mind, but but fortunately he's at a stage in his career where um, you know, he's been an incredible mentor to me and just a really great guy that I can chat with because it's weird, like growing up, um, with this, um, growing up, not growing up because this is really more so maybe my mid twenties, late twenties when I really started to get into the entertainment stuff, but there was no one else doing it. And mm -hmm. so there was no one really to, I couldn't really pick up the phone and call anybody. Yeah. Um, so I was really kind of in the trenches learning this, doing it myself. I wrote, um, this thing called the legal guide for musicians, which is how I, kind of started getting the um, the knowledge and the foundation uh, through writing that kind of like mini ebook. Um, and so I kind of did it all myself. And I'm at the point now though, where, um, where now it's really great to have a mentor to, you know, ask a question. And um, I do think though, that you kind of learn a lot going through the trenches on your own that you wouldn't yeah. otherwise learn because, you know, there are, you know, inter like boutique entertainment law firms in Toronto and, you know, you could go into one of those firms from school and that would be great. And I think a lot of the entertainment lawyers now do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> but, but in hindsight, like having cut my teeth and doing it on my own, I learned things, I think through that process that I don't think I could have ever learned, um, just going into, you know, an yeah. established practice or entertainment law firm. Especially yeah. if they're not teaching you anything at law school, <laughs> yeah. eh? Well, well <laughs> no, not, not really. Like it's, any uh, university <laughs> course though. Like they never so really true. focus exactly on how to do the this in the world. The application is never really the strong point. It's just the, the theory yeah. or the foundation, but yeah, the yeah. learning by doing, of course, is always your, your best way. Yeah. I mean, to your point though, about law school, like you learn how to write a great paper or memo or something but you don't really learn how to speak to a client or mm -hmm. how to manage client priorities and needs you know how to problem solve um what issues are important versus what aren't um you know there's a lot of stuff you just have to kind of learn as you go through your practice which makes law a little bit weird and different in that way like if you went to medical school i mean you learn how to be a doctor in yeah school. It, um, it sounds like it's there's some room for creativity though in it which totally is a great thing for someone like you yeah. who at their heart seems to be a creative person yeah no for sure you're you're right like i i think you you know you are given the tools to <clears throat> learn the foundations uh learn the foundation um you know get the tools you need to kind of succeed and um you know you do have to do a bar exam and you do bar courses and you have to article that is to say you have to work with a firm for a year or so before you can get called to the bar mm -hmm. uh, before you get your license to practice so you do get that practical element before you you know officially become um, a practicing member of the bar so there is that component too yeah um but yeah definitely some room for creativity and 
Um, yeah, we have a very, very special sponsor of this episode that we both love dearly with all our hearts: the Rustic, Rustic Crust Pizza. Pizza. Yum, yum, yum! In Upper Tan Talon, Nova Scotia, these folks started off in a food truck, and they now have a fully functioning restaurant. They've got a beer garden for the summertime. They get rented out for private events. They have everything there. Yeah, I can honestly say it's my favorite pizza in the world. Like, really. 10 out of 10, so delicious. It's my favorite spot to eat. And I play a lot of gigs there. They treat me like a god when I go there. They're so nice. It's hard to believe that a local pizza spot is such good supporters of the arts. They're also very supportive of community events. They have taken in a Ukrainian family. They're always giving to fundraising events. They're just amazing people across the board. And you have your art showcase there too. I've got art up there right now. And I have to say, I love their pizza as well. Well, of course, but their Caesar salad is exceptional. Next level. The pizza is wood-fired, which makes it absolutely delicious. And the tomatoes and flour are both from Italy. They've got an awesome collection of local craft beer and wine, so you're sure to have a great drink to pair with your pizza. All of our guests that come to stay with us, we bring them there for a meal. You can find this sweet little restaurant at 10 Sunnies Road in Upper Tan Talon. They're open Tuesday to Sunday year-round, and their website is therusticcrustpizzeria.com. Yeah, you should definitely check it out if you're in the area. You can go to the beer garden, you can go inside. It's a cool house converted into a restaurant. Great people doing great things that we truly are huge fans of, so check them out now. Rustic Crust! Rustic Crust! Has the legal side of the industry changed in unison with the changing landscape off the music industry, because 20 years ago, the industry was a completely different entity than it is now. Like, and even I saw you make a post about AI uh, writing music yeah. recently. Like, so mm-hmm. obviously there's gotta be this fast changing world where I'm sure laws are changing and just mm. the, the way that's, the the musicians create is different. The way music's released is different. How does how do you adapt with that? Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think the laws are kind of always a little bit behind. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> AI is a good example, but I think the challenge there is um, no one really knows where it's going yet. Yeah. Um, and so, like, if we take that as a specific example and a post I made recently um, about like generative AI and copyright and whether, you know, something that's created through generative AI, whether it attracts copyright protection or not, um, the, you know, whether something that can be protected by copyright turns on originality, is it original? And the bar for originality is pretty low in this country and in the United States, you know, a like a song doesn't need to be good to be original. <laughs> It can be the biggest pile of shit, but so long as it's not copied and so long as it's not sort of a mechanic, quote, a mechanical exercise, um, uh, you know, it can attract copyright protection. Um, So when all this stuff is happening, you know, where my head goes as well, if something is created through generative AI and through very limited prompts um, and it's almost purely a mechanical exercise, well, can that actually be original? And that's, in my view, where I think this is headed. And so um, to answer that question, I think that's one aspect of where I think the laws might need to be um, addressed, whether the actual Copyright Act changes or whether it goes to court 
And, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada needs to make a decision maybe on, you know, a new test for originality. You know, maybe, um, you know, maybe that test changes. Maybe it doesn't have to involve a human um, or maybe it needs to still, you know, maybe it can be a mechanical exercise, but maybe there needs to be some guidance on, you know, prompts, you know, um, like, you know, if I just said, hey, create a Drake sounding song, period. And then a three minute song pops out that sounds like Drake. I'd like to think that is probably not original. But if you said, hey, play Drake song, you know, that's sort of, a, you know, four on the floor sounding kind of song rhythmically with a melodic change and, you know, in the key of whatever, um, blah, blah, blah. Well, hey, maybe that could attract copyright protection because all those prompts are original and creative and not a human element. And I kind of think that's maybe where it's going. But to actually draw the line and make mm -hmm. a, a test, a court is really going to have to weigh in on that. This is and wild. So, this technology mm -hmm. exists where you can kind of give this synopsis of what you want a sound to be and it will be produced well i think so i think yeah. we're getting there for sure and i think of like chat uh, uh gbt gbt um you know uh that only take a few prompts in order to pop out a few paragraphs or a paper or something yeah. like that and i think that's exactly where where music is going the same thing uh you know there's a um generative ai app for lyrics and i know that can happen for for lyrics as well so yeah, totally. I think that's that's where this is all kind of going. You know, you can give a few prompts and say, you know, um, you know, sing the song using Adele's voice, and here's a three minute song, you know, with Adele's voice. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's pretty wild. It feels. I I don't know how I feel about this yet. I because my uh, knowledge of AI first started the conversations I've had around it are about the self driving car. So this technology exists. I think we're more caught socially in this kind of philosophical conversation of okay well given this circumstance so if there's a group of kids that run out in the road or a bus that's coming towards you what decision does the car make so we're kind of giving that autonomy to this machine essentially hmm. so the technology's there but we as free thinking people have to kind of catch up with okay we have this tool but how do we really want to use it it's almost like the machine has already surpassed us in this weird way yeah. that the futuristics <clears throat> among us saw this coming. But yeah. creatively speaking, this is like, I haven't really thought about that. Like we use digital technology, of course, for be it recording a song or I'm, I'm seeing even a lot of painters that are doing these interesting hybrid paintings with AI technology or layering a digital image on something. But yeah, the question of ownership and copyright and all of that is uh, an interesting one. Yeah, it's super interesting. <laughs> I think it's going to be super messy. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, but, um, you know, one thing I recently put out there was um, this notion of appropriation of personality. I think that's going to become an issue as well. It is becoming an issue. So, you know, you can uh, maybe replicate someone's vocals, but we're at like... Um, when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, that Drake song that came out, well, that's an original song, as I understand it. Like that that song has an original verse and hook and lyrics are wholly independently written, um, but it uses Drake's voice <laughs> and The Weeknd. Um, although the name Drake and The Weeknd aren't used, again, to my to my understanding. So it's then, okay, well, you're just left with a voice. And so what does that mean? And I think that's where this notion of appropriation of personality comes in. And 
that's sort of an established legal doctrine already, um, which essentially um, goes something like this. Like if you are a creative person or an artist, you have you and only you have the sole right to um, commercialize your image, your likeness, your personality, um, your voice, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think what's happening right now kind of skirts that line. Um, and so if you do use like Adele's voice or Drake's voice or whatever, even if you aren't marketing it as an Adele song or a Drake song or a weekend song, you're using their voice. And so is that a violation of someone's right to commercialize um, their likeness, their image, their, you know, their, their voice, et cetera. So I think that's where this is kind of going. Um, you know, I, I just posted something the other day. Who's the artist? Um, I forget that basically said, Hey, I want anybody out there to use my voice, but I want uh, 50% of the royalties. Grimes. Yeah. Grimes. Mm. And that's exactly kind of what I <laughs> predicted would happen. Right. Um, you know, what a cool place for an established artist to be. You know, and I think you can only get away with this if you're an established artist. Yeah. But I always thought to myself, well, hey, if I'm Adele and Adele's management team, I would put this out there to the world, but say, hey, number one, I want to be able to uh, approve or sign off on this, you know, AI generated song or or piece of music. And number two, um, we want royalties. <laughs> we want 50% of the sound recording or maybe 50% of the publishing or whatever it is. And what a crazy passive free money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what a crazy passive income yeah. stream for yeah. um for artists. And I think Grimes, I'm sure it's happened already, but at least to my knowledge, that was one of the first examples where I I you know like you know saw someone pu publicly say, yeah. Hey, go to town, but here's the deal. Um, how you enforce that, I don't know. Yeah. But um And legally speaking, are you thinking to yourself, I'm anticipating this? setting precedence type of case because that must not happen all that often does it when you kind of know that this is coming that it will possibly yeah. change the landscape forever yeah like in the case of the ai stuff yeah um yeah no for sure i mean i think um i think this i think people saw this coming um and like a lot of disruptive technology i, I think a lot of people don't see it coming so quickly yeah <laughs> um because this kind of like all of a sudden um heart on my sleeve came out and everyone's like whoa <laughs> Okay, well, this racked up a few million streams and it continues to get taken down. And then in like a few days, it's like a few hundred thousand streams and views and whatever. So it's fully here. <laughs> um, and so now I think we just have to kind of adapt. And back to your earlier question, Mike, like um, about the laws and catching up and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's where we are now and where my head always goes is, okay, well, what's the current framework? Um, well, we already have laws, like we have copyright laws and we have notions like appropriation of personality and we have all this stuff. And then the question is, well, can all this crazy shit that's happening right now fit within the framework of what we have? Mm. And maybe it can, you know, maybe it can, like, you know, digital streaming um, was able to kind of fit within the framework of what we had, you know, was a stream on um, a on-demand digital service um, like Spotify, a quote, public performance for the purposes of um, a performance, a songwriter performance royalty through SoCan. <laughs> that was a long-winded question, but that was a question that popped up with streaming. And now, you know, when a Town Hero track, a Town Hero's tracks, uh, track plays on Spotify, you know, you get a royalty for the sound recording, but it also is a public performance of the song. And so it also triggers a SoCan royalty. So I haven't seen your statements, but 
you know, quarterly when you get them, whatever your streaming income is going to be, um, you're not just getting your sound recording royalties from that stream from those streams. You're also going to see SoCan royalties or songwriter royalties through the public performance of that stream. And that's kind of a nerdy example, I guess, of how, you know, we the Copyright Act wasn't changed, but courts did weigh in and they said, well, hey, um, although maybe only one person is listening to this stream, it's still a public performance for the sake of, you know, generating um, uh, SoCan royalties and for the sake of deeming a song publicly performed because it's available to everybody mm. and one person could stream it um, or a million or 10 million people at the same time. Hey, everybody, that's a performance for, you know, and, and that's, you know, that was a good win for songwriters. So that's how we've kind of been adapting, I think, the laws over time. But a long-winded way of saying we have a good existing framework. And I think the first step is to figure out, hey, um, does that existing framework work? And if so, great. But if not, the courts are going to have to weigh in. And um, worst case scenario, you know, Parliament is going to have to weigh in and kind of change the actual Copyright Act and figure out a way, a way forward. I haven't listened to any of the AI created tracks that are out there. And uh, have you, Kristen? No. So I'm not sure how good they are. Um, I'm very curious now. Do you think that? And we have no way to predict how smart AI will get. And I know people think that it can potentially take over the world and all these things that it can do. But in terms of creating something like a song where emotion and feeling and all these components, all the great songs that have ever been created have these human experiences attached to it, you think AI can actually delve into that and surpass what we're doing i i don't know it, it's, um, <laughs> from a legal perspective did you think yeah. about this on your drive over <laughs> um yeah um no is it too early for a drink I'm um yeah no i uh, i don't know it's a good question and i have been thinking a little bit about that yeah um i kind of think it's going to be genre specific mm -hmm. um so i know there's a lot of hate going on about heart on my sleeve like I listen to that song and listen, I think it's a cool song. I think it sounds like a, it's, it's a great hip hop song. Um, I, I listen to a lot of hip hop. I, I think it's cool. That is something created by AI? AI? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Created by AI. Um, so it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in my view, there's going to be a difference between AI being used to create a, a hip hop or R&B song where, um, you know, there's already sort of a... Um, an electronic kind of aspect to it where you're not dealing with acoustic drums, you're dealing with, you know, instrumental tracks and so-called beats, yeah. um, producers kind of, um, I think AI generated stuff is, is going to be geared towards that kind of genre, I think. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. if we're talking about a super delicate, like, in, you know, acoustic <laughs> track, um, yeah. maybe it's going to be harder to get that human element. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you, you know, you'd know this a whole lot better than than I. But, you know, when you're recording a song like that in the studio, sometimes it's the imperfections that work really, really well and make a song yeah. human and and allow it to resonate um, yeah. or ensure that it resonates with, with the public. And um, whether AI tracks are going to have that kind of success, um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be more difficult in the, the genres where um, there's more space. 
and um, uh, where there's more kind of maybe heart and soul, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's not a great way of putting it because there's plenty of heart and soul in hip hop as well. Yeah. But when you're dealing with, you know, producers and auto-tune stuff um, and you're dealing in that genre, I think it's, um, you know, uh, maybe AI generated technology can, can more so get away with certain genres as opposed yeah. to others. That's kind of me fumbling my way through that kind of question, but it's a good one. What do you, and, uh, what do you think? Yet. Like, how, how do you feel uh, about this being in the future or the now, really? I don't, well, obviously I can't predict what's going to happen, but I think there's probably going to be like in uh, bodybuilding and stuff, they have like the, the clean competitions where you're natural and they're usually just not as big as the other guys who are loaded to the gills on steroids, but it's accepted that they take that. And I think there might be these two worlds to separate. Okay, these are AI tracks, and this is people without AI. Yeah, no, might for be sure. something like that. Yeah, um, and it could be said for any genre of creativity, really. Like filmmaking is a, a great example of just yeah. it, it's obviously exceeded just going back out with your camcorder and it being this organic grassroots like we just saw the new avatar that was billions and billions of dollars to make but it was brilliant and visually stimulating and the same is happening like i mentioned with paintings like people are layering these different digital fonts and like is it any less of a piece of art because they've used this different tool aside from a paintbrush to create it like i don't know but think of in it's probably not possible right now but in a couple of years you can go to a a kid in junior high and go to some ai device and say hey create the two hour movie and they give a little bit of uh plot and the specific prompts and they create something as good as avatar that yeah. costs two billion dollars to make like that could be possible yeah no for sure <laughs> we all need to just simmer and think about yeah. this yeah. yeah it's pretty freaky um uh, I was actually invited to do uh, a presentation on the metaverse and this kind of stuff. Um, there was like this Norwegian um, tech music conference thing. And uh, we got talking about this sort of stuff during the, the Q and a um, and something I raised like was in the beat making and production world. Um, you know, all the technology that's evolved in that world, there was I'm sure many occasions where someone said, Hey, that plugin's like cheating or, yeah. you know, anyone can now be a producer. And I think it's probably true to a certain extent, but I can tell you this, like great, like producers are still sought after and respected more so than I think they ever have been before. Mm -hmm. So I think that technology has, you know, not allowed, um, you know, folks who are not talented to sort of rise to the top. I think those tools have been used by great producers to become even better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's no fooling anybody in the industry. If you're a great producer, people know about it and people know you. So um, I think maybe the same could be true about, um, you know, generative AI stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think we all do have to think about it a little bit. Um, and when you do get to a point where it takes very few prompts to like pump out some, mm -hmm. some lyrics or something, um, I don't know, maybe that becomes a problem. But, um, but I don't know, from your perspective, if you had writer's block, you know, and, you know, you had a great riff and chorus musically, yeah. but you didn't have lyrics, you know, maybe you had a few paragraphs, but there was just something in the hook that wasn't working, but you already had a vision, yeah. you know, you already knew directionally where the song was going. 
but there was maybe a word or a phrase or an idea that you just needed but couldn't quite get there. Yeah. You know, I can see some of these um, lyrical apps or generative AI apps really helping you in that situation yeah. where, you know, you've already got a song, you've already got copyright protected work, you've already got something beautiful and innovative, but you're just using technology to really kind of you know, grab that word or phrase or idea that you just weren't quite able to get. It's just a tool to aid the creator in getting the final product. I, guess. I think so. Yeah. Like having a little toke in the back room before you <laughs> <Yeah>. paint. <laughs> Whatever gets the mind going, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I'm just more curious to see where it goes. Yeah, it is fascinating. <clears throat> and I know some some really smart people in the world have been very afraid of what AI can do and not even just the creative side, like more like it's going to take over the world and enslave us. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I just, I guess we, no one knows what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Like the, op the optimistic side, um, of me, um, says, Hey, this is not the first time that, you know, the music industry has faced disruption. Um, yeah. Everybody knows, like, how, what could be more disruptive than, you know, um, you know, physical sales completely going away yeah, and the whole and Napster and the whole industry tanking. But I think we're in a much better place to a certain extent. I mean, the access that people have with respect to music. Um, yes, you know, fair compensation is a whole different uh, discussion. And uh, maybe that gets better over time, but it also gives certain artists access they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, you know, if it wasn't for on-demand digital streaming and keep in mind that for on-demand digital streaming, it's only one revenue stream, you know, maybe an artist is able to get their foot in the door through on-demand digital streaming and gain an audience somewhere they never thought they'd have an audience. And then they can tour there and sell out shows and push merch and yeah. uh, maybe open up a whole lot of other revenue streams. It's not just on-demand streaming. So um, again, I think... <laughs> How could it be more disruptive? Uh, how could things be, get more disruptive than that? This is maybe a close second, <laughs> but again, it's not the first time that the music industry has gone through disruption. So I'm, I'm again, the optimistic side of me thinks yeah. that with disruption comes an opportunity for for innovation. And Great point. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. Maybe we will all get taken over. And, um, <laughs> I yeah, I think creative people and. Well, from my experience, musicians especially are some of the most adaptable people. Totally. Like they're just ready to roll with anything. Mm -hmm. Like things change on a dime and you have to just follow through. And even like when the pandemic hit, like a lot of musicians just instantly transition. Okay, I'm playing live shows on the Zoom. What is Zoom? Okay, figure it out. Let's go. It was just, uh, yeah, you're always rolling with the punches. For sure. And I mean, if there's anything about um, adaptive, great musicians that sort of thrive in the industry it's that they grind and hustle like they work really yeah. really hard like folks that are successful in the industry songwriters producers whatever they're always doing it and so i can't really see some random person in their basement using generative ai and pumping out great mm -hmm. things who's not already great themselves yeah. <laughs> um i'd like to think that um you know those great songwriters those great producers and artists who are putting you know hours and hours and hours into their craft every day um will continue to do great things and use ai as an added tool but i don't necessarily think it's going to give certain access to somebody um who has no talent to begin with yeah um but i don't know we'll see <laughs>
You've been really generous, generous, Matt, in just offering your knowledge and expertise. So maybe it's a quick video on Instagram. I know you've published a few articles that are just available. You can go in and click and read those. Yeah. How how does your client know that they need to hire you? And I ask that in, is it sort of, okay, everybody knows once they have a problem and it's like, oh, shoot, I need a lawyer. Is there a step before that that's almost more of a preventative thing? Or if you're new in your career, I'd love to hear you kind of chat about yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I always say to people um, that it's never too early to get an entertainment lawyer. Um, I never charge for consultations. Um and if you're serious about your career, uh, at some point, you'll need an entertainment lawyer at some point, um, whether it's to draft contracts or review contracts or whatever. And so I always say, contact an entertainment lawyer. There's a bunch of us out there and just get to know them. That way, you know, you're not scrambling to find one at the 11th hour. Um, so a lot of the conversations I have on a weekly basis are just folks that want to meet and touch base and I ask some questions about their career and they say, yep, we'll want to work with you. This is coming down, you know, the pipe down the road and I'll contact you then. But I always say, yeah, it's never too early to, to contact an entertainment lawyer. Um, otherwise, <laughs> um, I normally, you know, so they're the people that are proactive and, and that's great. But obviously, inevitably, there are those that, you know, start freaking out when they get a piece of paper. Yeah. And so I get a lot of calls and emails sometimes. Um, uh, you know, from from folks that have received a, a management agreement or a record deal or a publishing deal, they don't know what to do, and uh, and then so we just kind of dive in. Um, the other thing I say to folks is, um, you know, from a preventative perspective, I always say if someone's touching your art or your work, you should probably get a piece of paper. So if you're doing an album, an EP, or whatever, and you've got producers coming in or you've got co-writers coming in, um, you know, someone's coming in to do a guitar solo, or um, you've got, you've hired a drummer for, you know, to do some tracking or whatever. Um, you've got someone mixing the project. Um, even though the risk might be low if you know everybody, and oftentimes that happens, I'm, I'm practical when it comes to the music industry. Sometimes everyone knows everybody and mm -hmm. everyone's comfortable kind of proceeding until a lot of money's on the line and they're not. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's another kind of tip I give folks is, is, um, you know, whenever people touch your art, you need a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, again, whether it's a mixer deal or a producer deal or um, co-writer agreements or whatever. So it kind of just depends on on when someone contacts me and at what stage of their career they're in. Um, and is it exclusively with musicians that you work? So mostly music, but anyone that really creates content. Mm -hmm. So I've um, I've got some writer clients, influencer clients, um, you know, a few clients in film and TV, um, you know, uh, on the other side, I also have record label publisher clients, um, as well, but, um, but yeah, I'd like to think anyone that creates content, I would, um, you know, I provide advice to, to those folks. Um, I still do some corporate commercial law. So, um, so the corporate commercial stuff sometimes is inevitable if, if a musician's doing really, really well and for tax reasons or liability reasons, they, they need to sort of restructure their business. I'll give them advice on that, which is more, you know, corporate rather than um, than creative. Um, but yeah, it's really all content creators. You you mentioned you've uh, started managing is it one person you're working with. Yeah, yeah, managing a um, producer named Mike Saunier. Yeah, um, he was a client of mine, and then as time went on, I started giving him advice that was just well beyond legal. Yeah. And I'm just like, dude, what's going on here? Here's life coach now. <laughs> what's going on here? 
Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's from Toronto, um, currently uh, living in L.A. Um, he signed with Sony ATV. Um, Sony ATV is his publisher, and and uh, yeah, he's a he's a songwriter, producer, and and we um, uh, yeah, I want to say for the last six months or so, it's been kind of purely management. So that's been a new, interesting role for me. Very, very different. Yeah then the legal it's kind of just everything all the above when it comes to management is that something you want to get more into um not right now yeah (laughs) right now my schedule is is a bit insane and i don't think i take on more than one management client at least i don't think i could do it the right way yeah um right now my uh from a management perspective my focus is purely on on mike and what he's doing and he's busy enough and he's got enough stuff going on that there's there's always stuff to talk about and um, there's always kind of business planning and, and, uh, yeah. So one is enough. Um, I, uh, yeah, a lot of respect to managers. There's, there's a, you know, it's, it's kind of, maybe I've kind of informally been doing that over the years, but, yeah. um, but this is the first time I've actually like completely leaned into it, but, um, it's, uh, you know, it can sometimes be a thankless job. I mean, not with Mike because he's great, but I see a lot of managers who manage multiple artists and, and oftentimes there's a lot that the you know the manager does that the artist or producer doesn't know about um and uh, sometimes you just never know if you're a manager sometimes you don't know where that artist or producer is going or what the money is going to be you have to just really uh, believe in them and feel passionate about what you're doing and um that's kind of where i am with with mike right now and yeah. um and i do like the legal I, I do like the balance between law and management and and um over time maybe instead of you know it being 80 20 maybe it becomes more like 50 50 or something yeah. but um that's uh that's yeah part of the business that i'm i'm um, interested in just kind of um watching grow and exploring and seeing where, what do, where we go. what does your day look like you you're a busy man you um have two two little kids yeah 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 it's um uh, <laughs> what does the day look like are, like, um, are you driving into an office every day or? Yeah, yeah, yeah I am. So, uh, so my kids go to school. Mm-hmm. So I wake up pretty early, um, uh, breakfast and craziness, drop them off at school, go into my office, uh, work. Um, I leave every day to pick up my kids at 4.30. I'm probably one of the first lawyers out of my office. Mm. Um, I'm there for supper, bedtime, but... <laughs> Then when they're down, it's not uncommon for me to work from like 8.30 p.m. to 1 or 2 a.m. and repeat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so it is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, it's probably, you know, not going to be like that all the time. I think a lot has to do with the fact that my kids are young and I, I want to make sure I make time for, you know, all that stuff. So I'd, I'd much rather kind of be there for supper, bedtime, all that stuff and work late than kind of come home, you know, at 8 p.m. when the kids are in bed and sure. you know have a drink of scotch like maybe lawyers did back in the day or something. <laughs> we need um, to get you in the musicians hockey league, like I was saying. Yeah, no, I gotta. It's nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I, that that is perfect. Yeah. Like not, a, I mean, you gotta yeah, loop me in. Send yeah, me, I will. Yeah, we'll chat. <laughs> no, for sure. But uh, yeah, busy day, but I, I love what I do. And, and uh, I'm a firm believer of just making time for what you want. Um, and uh, I, I kind of live by that every day. And whether, um, you know, whether I only have a few hours to sleep or not, I'm, again, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you have to make time for the things you're passionate about and the things you want to do um, or else they just won't happen. So uh, at least for now, anyway, that also means not much sleep. 
but uh, that will change one day, I'm sure. What's your escape or what helped you recharge your batteries? Um, good question. Um, like I say, I still like to play drums as much as I can. I do play guitar. Um, I grew up playing classical piano and all that stuff. So, so I, I, we have a piano at home and, and I do write, um, all of, you know, music on the piano. So I do love doing that. I've been doing that more lately than, than ever before. Um, but that's kind of it for now. I like, I always wanted to surf. And so I, you know, I, my, my birthday is in October and last year I, I took up surfing for the first time. Um, unfortunately that was the only time I did it was on my birthday. So <laughs> that's something I want to try to actually get into regularly this summer. And I, I feel like that will be a really, really, um, cool escape yeah. um, and something I'd like to do, um, more of this year is kind of a goal of mine to yeah do something that's new. Very cool. Yeah. We hear, we've had a couple of folks on the podcast that surf and describe it as, yeah, very Zen. It's, it's different than just playing a sport. Like yeah. there's something more spiritual or grounding about it. I guess you're literally in nature, like you're in the water. So maybe that's. Yeah. No, for sure. And and I also think it's helpful that, you you know, at least where I went was out to uh, Lawrencetown and, you know, there's also the drive out there and you're mm -hmm. decompressing and you do your thing. And there's this like, you know, beautiful coffee shop slash bakery that overlooks the ocean. And um, the whole process was really, really um, like spiritual for me and incredible. And, and so I want to make more time for that. So I feel like that will be a new kind of outlet yeah. for me um, because, yeah, that's important, too. And I'm, I'm probably not doing enough. Uh, fun stuff <laughs> on the side but it's it sounds like you've got this really interesting balance though with you've stayed with your drums like you still have that creative outlet and yeah it's it's unique in your role because if you if you're a musician and you want to hire an entertainment lawyer who better to hire than somebody who actually has done it themselves i mean i'm stating the obvious here and we have talked a little bit about this but that must be something you hear all the time like you're just such the the perfect fit and I think sometimes when we're starting out in a career, like I studied international development in my undergrad because I liked traveling, mm -hmm. but I've since come to learn, like there's so many other things I could have studied if travel was the important thing. Like you could have been a nurse or a teacher or any of these things. So I, I feel like you've really struck this great balance that seems to suit your personality too. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I know. I, 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 I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I personally think balance is is everything, um, no matter what. I mean, even, you know, musicians that I chat with who are playing amazing shows and long tours, um, big money on the line, you know, fulfilling their dreams um, who are burnt out, you know, not all of them, but some. Um, so if the pendulum swings too far one way. I'm a firm believer that no matter what you do in life, it's not going to be healthy or mental health is going to break down. You won't actually like what you do anymore, or at least for a period of time. And so um, I think we're all in some weird way trying to find a balance, <laughs> um, no matter what we do, no matter what our careers are. And I think the music industry um, uh, is no exception. And I think it's it's um, more important, I think, to find that balance because there's so many different avenues and ways to make money. It's not like, you know, the music industry is unitary in that there's one thing you do. It's not like you mm -hmm. just go play a show twice a week and that's kind of it and you're done. Right. There's social media, marketing, you know, live performances. You know, if you were one of those crazy people that got into NFTs, there's that. There's, um, you know, royalty tracking, like the business side, SoCan, Connect Music Licensing, Sound Exchange. There's a million <laughs> different things going on in mm -hmm. parts of your business, production, whatever. Um, 
and and what is enough in the music industry you know is it the record deal you're looking for you know the the making it kind of thing is a nebulous weird kind of concept that is not like crystal clear for people like you work an office job nine to five it's not really like that's kind of your thing that's your job it's what you do in the music industry i think we all have dreams and visions of what you want to do and figuring out you know how much is enough is a weird thing that's different for everybody so I think for all those reasons, it's a lot harder to find a balance in the music industry, but I think it's critically important, not just in the music industry, but everywhere. But, uh, but yeah, I think particularly in the music industry. Yeah. I think I don't the, know. the thing in the music that industry, sense, by the way? yeah, I think it's that there's no, uh, cap on where things can go. Like yeah. If, if you're whatever teacher, there's any normal job, like this is what you can do. This is as far as you can go with it. And this is the path you take to get there. Yeah. It's also very clear. And music, like if I put in 23 hours and uh, 58 minutes, I could also put in that extra minute a day. Like there's just yeah. no end to the work you can do. Yeah. So it's, totally. like, there's always one more thing you can be doing. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you an example. Like I'm sure you won't mind me sharing this, but um, Mike, uh, who I manage, I mean, his, his sort of big hit was Noah Cyrus's July, you know, it's got well over a billion streams globally. Um, and the conversation is, okay, well, what's the next July? <laughs> what's the next thing? Um, you know, he worked on, um, the weekends in Kendrick Lamar's, uh, uh, pray for me, uh, well over a billion streams. What's the next thing? Um, that's just part of the conversation and, and, uh, and yeah, if you're ambitious, it's, it's, it, you know, you need to be ambitious, but at, at a, um, but at some point everyone's got to figure out what that balance is and what that, you know, what enough means and all that kind of stuff. And, um, there's no right or wrong answer, um, in the music industry. So again, all the more reason why I think everyone's got to find a balance and figure out what makes them happy and be appreciative of the successes and not gloss over them. I'm a firm believer of that. And, um, don't even remember how we got on this topic, but having worked balance, with so right? many musicians now or, or just creative people in the entertainment world, are, is that common where you see people kind of always striving for that next thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I do have, do have a lot of these different kind of conversations though with people about, um, you know, well, maybe I don't want a major label, you know, maybe that's just not for me. Um, yeah, there's, there's a big pile of money there um but i also have to give them five albums or something and they might be the last record label i have for the rest of my life um they're based in la i'm in canada i don't know just not going to work mm -hmm. and maybe i can focus on doing these other things and you know maybe i don't need to make half a million dollars a year or whatever maybe i can if i net eighty thousand dollars doing music and that's that that's amazing that's what i want to do and so I kind of hear more, I kind of have more of those discussions probably than I used to in the past, because I think people are thinking differently about how they want to leave their mark, um, how they want to live day to day balance, um, you know, uh, dare I say like work-life balance in the music industry and all that. I, I'm just finding that's maybe more of a, you know, a common theme lately that people are just thinking about their careers a little bit differently and, and how they can do things a little bit differently. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I do have those conversations. But a this lot. is like, I find this really fascinating feedback because I would argue that the average person, maybe when they think of a lawyer, entertainment lawyer or not, it feels more rigid than what I'm hearing you maybe describe your day to day feels like, because 
it sounds like every client maybe is a little bit different and you would have to figure out what their needs and desires are above and beyond yep. just this is the black and white of the law, which maybe we might assume. Yeah, probably probably the most frequent thing I say day to day is there's a practical answer. There's a legal answer and there's a practical answer. Yeah. <laughs> I always say that um, because um, I think a lot of people get sick of lawyers that only say no and give them the law, but don't give them solutions or options or whatever. Um, in the music industry in particular, you know, people aren't just looking for advice on their contract or whatever. I think they're looking for broader advice, even if they don't realize it at the time. Um, I'll give you an example. Like I had a, a call with yesterday, this guy, um, phenomenal musician, um, he's getting a little bit older. Um, you know, he's, he's getting in the music industry anyway. He's, he's maybe considered a little bit older. He's, he's 40. Um, and, uh, this is sort of his first artist project. Um, and he's been offered some deals. He's been offered, you know, a production deal. He's been offered a management contract and they're aggressive. They're aggressive contracts. Um, there's some maybe decent money and funding there, but they're aggressive. And so the question kind of is, well, you know, what do we fight here? You know, do you have the bargaining power to say no? Um, but if you do say no, are there any other options? Maybe not. <laughs> um, and what do you want to do? Like X, Y, and Z is going on with your family and that's motivating you to do these sort of things. That's a relevant factor too. So it's not just really what's on mm -hmm. the paper. And so my first kind of step is to advise them what the paper says and why it's maybe industry standard or not industry standard or whatever. But then it's a whole broader kind of conversation. Like then 20% of it is the legal stuff. And then maybe 80% of it is, well, how does all this make sense into what's going on in your life right now? Um, you know, and does it work? And you know what, maybe it's aggressive, but I, I hate to say it, buddy, but this is the only deal you're ever going to get. If you don't take this deal, you're not getting another one. <laughs> People don't like to hear that. And and I'm, I'm like, not always that firm, but sometimes mm -hmm. I am just because I think the client needs to hear it because there's always um, a risk that if someone walks, you know, they may not get that opportunity depending on what stage they're at in their career. So yeah, there's a million different things to think about. And that's, um, at least that's my approach. I don't think every lawyer probably does that. And I can't bill for all that time. Sure. <laughs> you know, I can't, I like get off a three hour your call. Your therapy bill and your yeah. legal bill. <laughs> I like, I like get off like a three hour call. And I'm just like, shit, I like, you know, capped my fees at two hours and there's still like another hour to go here. So I guess five will be business development and two will be billable. Um, hmm. so I do, I do a lot of that <laughs> anyway. It's uh, I do, I do, I do love it though. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like you have a really great personable approach to it, which is far more accessible than again, what we I might so. assume. So yeah, I'm glad no. that we were able to kind of explore a little bit. No, for part. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And your wife is an artist too. Yes. Mallory's an artist as well. Yeah. No, she's a, she's a great, uh, painter. Does like, like a lot of watercolor stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I follow her on Instagram. Yeah. So I was curious. Yeah. yeah. No, she's doing like a art residency right now um, down in Kenville. Um, it's a yeah, really cool thing. She's at like the Kenville Public Library and cool. doing all these art workshops. And um, it ends this week with uh, like a show of all the pieces she's worked on as well. Oh, nice. Good and different her. pieces I think she's worked on with other folks in the community. And she stays there? She stays there. Like part of the whole thing is she's like staying in this amazing farmhouse. There's mm -hmm. like pigs in the backyard mm -hmm. that like she's feeding every day. And so um, I brought the kids down there last or two weekends ago. Um, it's definitely busy without her, but, you know, super proud of her for 
for making it work. And she's made a lot of sacrifices for the stuff that I do and going away for conferences and stuff. So, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, the least I can do is kind of hold down the fort for a little while while she's doing that. Um, but yeah, she's, she's uh, a great artist and I think she just has a really great, um, artistic spirit about her and she's really passionate about what she does. And yeah, it's cool. She's been oh, able to kind great. of make that work. She's always very positive and, and supportive of, you know, like I've not met her, but we're a small yeah. community in Nova Scotia and you get to know the who's who. And, yeah. uh, she's always a cheerleader for everyone else as well. So no, for sure. I wanted to ask about her, her and, life too. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I know there's no visuals for this podcast, but all the art that I've seen, is that yours? For the most part in here. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. beautiful. Other than uh, Lawrence the Lion up here that was part of one of Mike's music videos. Yeah. There's a few props hanging around. A lot of conversation pieces. Yeah. In a room where conversations happen. (laughs) We're just creating the environment, aren't we? (laughs) Well, that's the perfect way to end this, I think, Matt. uh, So glad you could be here. Share your knowledge, your story, just all all about you. We're, We're glad that you were able to spend some time with us. Yeah. And are you accepting clients? Like, should we be sending folks to uh, call your number or are you hitting the brakes right now? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always kind of accepting clients okay. and I have some colleagues and associates that work with me as well. So uh, yeah, always, always accepting um, clients for sure. Um, but this was a lot of fun. I feel like it was a cool, almost like therapy session for me. I feel like I needed this or whatever, but it's an honor to be uh, invited here and Hopefully I was even, you know, 10% as interesting as all your other oh, phenomenal you, guests. It was so, amazing. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for being Appreciate here. Appreciate it a lot, man. And we'll, we'll chat more after. Sounds good. Cheers. Cheers. And here we are at the introduction portion of the show. Let's just say it all together, everyone. One, two, three. Outroduction. I didn't actually know that's what you were going to say, you but I figured. It. Yeah, you're, you're pretty smart. I went with my instincts. Smart lady. And watching your mouth. <laughs> Very smart lady. Well, that was Matt Gorman there, folks. Uh, entertainment lawyer, great guy, musician, and yeah, just a, a fun chat and a very interesting chat. Hope you you picked up some bits and pieces of information that yeah you might you might need yourself or just it made you think about something in a different way. Or maybe you need a lawyer yourself, and he's a perfect guy to, to touch base with. We have links in the show notes to Matt's Instagram account and his website as well, but. Particularly with his Instagram, he'll share videos with little tidbits of information that are very helpful. So that's a good way kind of to get a flavor for him and some of the things he offers. He's very giving with his information, things that can help. So I encourage you to hop over there and see if there's something that you can take away. And what do you have on the go, Kristen? Anything you want to mention? Togetherland, all the way. It's coming together. It's coming together. It's a place to gather. It's uh, about a month away-ish from opening day. Uh, we're off to Chicago soon, yeah. so it's definitely definitely good advice to take a trip in the middle of starting a new business. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we had this plan for a while, and we'll make it work. It's just a a joy to be there, and we ha- we've had lots of people donate things or offer to help. So thanks everyone for helping bring Togetherland together. Well, folks, we'll be back uh, next week, every Wednesday. This episode, these episodes of Mike and Chris and Air Live, and 
It's a pleasure that you're all listening and enjoying and sending positive feedback. And we ran into a lot of people this week who were fans of the podcast, so that was cool. And keep your submissions coming in. We are going to work on a proper application for those who are interested in being guests. Uh, can't make any promises as to when that will be, but we are getting quite a few of those come in. So if you are interested now, before we get that official application up, you can just shoot us an email at mikeandkristincreative at gmail.com. Okay, folks, much love and see you soon. Cheers. <laughs>